Amen. Please be seated. And if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. Philippians, chapter 2. You'll find that on page 1165 of your Pew Bible. It's page number 1165 and the chapter, Philippians, chapter 2. To understand this Christmas carol, I need to begin by telling you about John and Betty Stam. John grew up in a faithful Dutch Reformed home in Patterson, New Jersey, not far from here. And Betty grew up in a Presbyterian home, but on the mission field. Her father was a longtime Presbyterian missionary to China. Eventually, John and Betty met and they married and went to China themselves as missionaries in their late 20s. They had a baby and had just been married about one year when in 1934, communist forces overran their Chinese village. John and Betty were marched 12 miles to a different city And there the next day, they were beheaded by communist forces. Before she died, Betty managed to hide her newborn baby in some old clothes. And so little Helen survived and was eventually raised by her grandparents. While on their way to be executed, a Chinese shopkeeper tried to speak up on their behalf. His home was searched, a Bible was found, and he was beheaded with them. Just weeks later, the military unit responsible for these three murders was completely wiped out in battle. And today there are at least least 45 million Christians in China. Many people here in the USA entered into missions at that time because of John and Betty. The saying of the church father, Tertullian, is true. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In the same year that John and Betty were martyred, Frank Houghton, head of the China Inland Mission, was in China surveying the work. Inspired by their deaths and by Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 8, Frank Houghton wrote this hymn that we just sang. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Christmas is a missionary story. Jesus Christ is heaven's greatest missionary. No one one ever went farther from home than Jesus. No one reached more people than Jesus. No one suffered so much for those he came to save. Frank Houghton knew that. And that is why he so beautifully connected Christmas with the deaths of two of his missionaries. As he looked over China that day, he knew that missionaries all over China faced possible death and that this was the way of the master who left beauty and safety 
for danger and disgrace and all for love's sake. So today, let us consider again just how Jesus came. In the words of the hymn, stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenward by thine eternal plan. To get at all this, we will be studying together Philippians 2, 1 through 11, especially verses 5 through 8. Besides being one of the richest theological sections in all the New Testament, many scholars, many scholars, maybe most scholars actually, believe that these verses are also a hymn. That Paul is actually, as we often do here, quoting a hymn to the church in Philippi. With that introduction, will you please stand as I read to you Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we thank you for these precious words, this wonderful hymn to our Savior who was the true missionary of heaven. And we pray now that as we consider it, you would humble our hearts as we see one so high and so lifted up, coming in such humility for our sakes. Break our hearts anew at the thought of his love and his grace to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. The letter of Philippians, the letter you have in front of you, was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi, that's in Greece. The church there had sent him a much-needed financial gift along with a note conveying their love. The gift was a huge encouragement to Paul because he was under house arrest and facing death in Rome. Not only that, not only that, but some Christians had taken a step back from Paul when he was arrested. They did not want the shame of being associated with someone who may be named a disruptor of the peace, an enemy of the state. The Philippian gift then was a vote of confidence as well as much needed support 
For in those days, prisoners had to provide for themselves. Now, if you just glance with me for a moment, one page over at Philippians 1, you will see how Paul thanks them for their gift in verses 3 through 11. Then in verses 12 through 18, he assures them that the gospel is actually going forward through his experience. He's had the opportunity to reach the imperial guard and notable people in Rome because of his house arrest. And then we have this wonderful section in verses 19 through 26, where Paul, the missionary, reflects on his own martyrdom. He longs, he says in these verses, to be with Christ, but he also longs to stay so that he can be useful to the master here on earth. Just before John Stam was beheaded, he wrote a letter to his missionary board, which we have. He informs them of his capture by communist forces, and then he ends the letter by quoting a verse from this section, Philippians 1, verse 20, that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, up to this point, the letter of Philippians is a glorious and inspired missionary report. Paul is recounting his appreciation for their support. He's talking about the work that he's been doing and even sharing his personal struggles as he considers prison and possibly death. But then suddenly, in verse 27, the letter changes and Paul begins to preach. He urges them to prepare themselves for their own coming persecution. And he makes a frightening prediction in verse 29. Look at verse 29. It has been granted to you, Philippians, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul is saying, thank you for the gift. Thank you for your faithfulness. But know this, this persecution is coming to your door. What follows is a letter designed to prepare a church for suffering and persecution. The very first item on Paul's agenda might surprise us. He immediately targets their unity as a congregation. We find out later in chapter 4 that two notable women in the church were at odds with each other. They were arguing. But given the things Paul says here, I think we can safely say that the divisions went deeper than just these two women. Paul is deeply concerned, profoundly concerned, that they humble themselves and truly become one in order to face the coming struggle. To do this, to get them united and ready for what's about to happen to them, Paul does what he always does and what we so often fail to do, especially in crisis. Paul does theology. He goes to the life and the person and the work of Jesus and he digs down deep and brings up rich theology and he pulls it up and from those wonderful riches that are in Christ, he, he takes a gem, a prescription that can heal the wound. Specifically in these verses, 
he asks them and us to consider the depth, the depth of Jesus's humiliation. He knows, Paul knows, that the divisions in the church and divisions today are usually more than anything else a matter of pride. And so a fresh view of Christ's life is the cure. This morning, let's consider just two parts of this wonderful hymn, this wonderful and rich theology. Let us see together, first, the mind of Christ, the mind of Christ, and then second of all, the emptying of Christ. And so look with me first at the mind of Christ from both Philippians and our Christmas hymns. And notice this, that Christmas, as we look at these verses, does not begin with angels and shepherds, but Christmas actually began in the mind of Christ before our world was made. Christmas has its roots in the humility of Christ, a humility he had before the world was ever made. Paul in verse 6 takes us back into the mind of Christ prior to his incarnation in Bethlehem. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. Have this mind among yourselves, says Paul, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was past tense in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, in just those few words, that one sentence, Paul tells us two tremendously important truths about Jesus before he came to Bethlehem. First, Paul tells us that Jesus was in the form of God, who being in the form of God, the word used here suggests not just an outward appearance, not just like looking like God, but something much stronger. As Paul goes on to say, Jesus did not even consider equality with God, something he had to grasp for or hold on to. So Paul is clearly teaching equality between God the Father and God the Son. If you have any doubts about that, whether Jesus is really God, you can find that throughout your New Testament. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Or think about Colossians chapter 1. For in Jesus, Paul writes, all the fullness, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in this very passage, in verse 10, Jesus is given the name that is above every name. Now think about it. What name is above every name? Verse 11 tells you, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Yahweh, Lord and God, to the glory of God the Father. To understand this Christmas hymn, to understand Christmas properly, we need to understand who Jesus was prior to taking a human body in Bethlehem. This is also important for us to grasp today because false religions all around us continually try to attack this belief. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses go throughout our neighborhoods denying that Jesus is truly divine. Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was simply Michael the archangel and is a created being, not God. 
Meanwhile, our society at large, the bigger picture, treats Jesus as simply another moral teacher. But you can't have it that way. He has not left that option open to us, as C.S. Lewis famously said. The New Testament is full of the claims of Jesus's deity. Not only that, but one of the earliest secular documents we possess that describes Christianity specifically notes in the document that Christians sing a hymn to Christ as God. Scholars wonder, even to this day, could Philippians 2, the very verses we're reading, be an ancient hymn of the church? So Christ was in the form of God. He was fully divine. But there's a second very important truth in this one verse, in verse 6. He was in the form of God, equal with God, but he did not, quote, count equality with God something to be grasped. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means that Jesus had equality with God, but did not use that as a way out of suffering, shame, and death, even the death of the cross. He had every right, he had every right to never-ending praise without interruption. But he didn't cling to that as something to be grasped. Simply put, even before the manger, Jesus was humble and willing to suffer if it brought glory to his Father. Here we are, understand this, here we are looking into Jesus' eternal heart who he was, who he is, and who he will ever be. Probably the best way to envision this is to think of Adam. Adam was, you'll remember, seduced by the serpent with the prospect of being equal with God in trying to grasp onto that, trying to grab at equality with God. He plunged us down into sin and rebellion and all because Satan promised him you will be like God. How can such a tragic act, such a selfish act, an act of grasping be reversed? How can its power be broken and our world healed? God's perfect answer, deeply poetic and lovely beyond description, is the Lord Jesus Christ. His answer is found in Christ, in the heart of Christ, In verse 6 of our text, a world broken by ambition and selfishness must be healed by an act of unparalleled humility. And only only biblical Christianity offers that answer. Every other religion in our world today encourages you to be good, to follow their rules and keep their rituals, and then if you achieve enough, things will be good again for you. But do you see what that does? It actually makes the problem worse. You are already the problem. It's your desire for power, glory, and control that has caused all this damage. And religions, the religions of the world, only exacerbate the problem by making you your own savior. The world's answer to my self-addiction ends up being just more of me. It's like trying to cure your alcoholism with more liquor. And so often, unknowingly, maybe unintentionally, religions only make people more tyrannical, more touchy, 
less compassionate, and more self-righteous. So what is the answer to this problem? The answer, of course, is the Christ of Scripture. It's someone who already had all that we are grasping for and more, but out of his humble heart came down. Here is a true son of God. He already has equality. He already has praise and worship. He already has control, the love and glory we so desperately want. He already holds the world together by the power of his word. He has what Adam and all of us covet, and yet he gives it up for a time. The full privileges of that in order to make unworthy people sons and daughters again. Do you see this? Before Christmas, before our world was ever created, he had in his sacred heart a desire to serve. When the father said, who shall I send and who will go for us? Jesus, long before Isaiah, said, here am I, send me. When Isaiah said those words, so famously in Isaiah 6, it was but a distant echo of what Jesus had already done, of Jesus the volunteer, of Jesus the missionary of his love and his humility. Love is doing after all what is best for someone else at the cost to yourself. And that was already in the heart of Christ from all eternity. And that's what verse six teaches us. That is the mind of Christ to give up all that is he had rights to for the love of others. And it's the only way to reverse Adam sin and our sin it's the only way to reverse such treachery, such selfishness, such grasping. So see, first of all, the mind of Christ. Then see in verses 7 and 8, Paul switches now from the mind of Christ to what Christ did, the emptying of Christ in verses 7 and 8. Look again at those profound but uh, important verses that we easily skip over, I think, but we need to consider verses 7 and 8. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. First of all, it is so important that we understand this morning what Paul means here and what the New Testament has to say about Jesus emptying himself. Notice in these verses and in the Bible as a whole, Jesus never, Jesus never emptied himself of his essential nature as God. He, see, he receives worship throughout his life and ministry from men and angels. He tells his disciples that in seeing him, they have seen the father emptying here. Emptying here does not mean that Jesus gave up his divine nature. That idea, that idea that Jesus emptied himself of godhood is called kenosis theory, if you're interested. Kenosis, some of you might guess, it's the Greek word meaning emptying. We don't know what Charles Wesley personally believed, but our hymnal has changed the hymn, and can it be, in order to avoid the idea of kenosis. Wesley originally wrote, that Christ emptied himself of all but love. But our hymnal wisely, properly changed that line 
to so free, so infinite his grace. Another example, I think, and appropriate for our study, another example of the importance of doing music the right way. But more importantly for our study today, in the scripture before us, when Paul describes the emptying of Christ, he doesn't say that Jesus loses anything or lost anything. Rather, notice that Paul views the emptying of Jesus as the taking on of new things. He emptied himself, verse 7, by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found that way by humbling himself and becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The English that's in front of you in your Bible is perfectly accurate, but in the Greek, it's a little easier to see this structure. And I don't talk Greek much, but this is worth doing here because the structure is so obvious. The main verse in the hymn, and this probably is a hymn, is he emptied himself. That's the main verb. And then a quick succession of participles, of verbs, describe what that means. He emptied himself. He took the form of a certain. He took the likeness of men. He took obedience and humility to the cross. For Jesus, being emptied did not mean ceasing to be God. That could not happen. God cannot be unmade. Rather, for Jesus, being emptied meant taking on the shame and suffering of our existence. This is exactly what our Christmas hymn is after, isn't it? The second verse of our hymn says, Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man, stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenward by thine eternal plan. So when we say that Jesus emptied himself, that he stooped so low that he became man, we don't mean that he stopped being God the Son. What we mean is that he laid aside, emptied himself of the privileges and rights of that, and took on the burden and shame of our world and our existence. So understand that when we say Christ emptied himself, understand what that means. Second of all, notice in these verses, in verses 7 and 8, that this emptying of Christ was self-emptying. It was self-emptying. He chose it. Notice how Paul puts it in verse 7. He emptied himself by taking on these things. This was not forced upon him. This is not, as some modern critics have said, this is not cosmic child abuse. The father did not beat his son to spare us in some kind of sick act of child abuse. No, Jesus, who had this, remember, had this mind from before time began, emptied himself and freely chose humiliation. As an equal to God the Father, no one could force Jesus to do anything. He laid down his life willingly for his sheep. You'll remember those wonderful words from John 10, verse 18. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Jesus said those words as he approached the cross, the cross. And that's the climax of his self-emptying. And that's what verse 8 is all about. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Paul is saying this wasn't an, an act performed against him. He wasn't just uh, humble for a few minutes, but rather his life of humility culminated in the cross. He wasn't humble even for just a day, but to the farthest extent. We may be able sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes we're able to pull off humility for a few minutes. Uh, some of us, if we're really good, maybe a few hours. Maybe if you're really, really good and you're a really mature Christian, maybe a whole day. I don't know. But what happens? Eventually our pride shows up. And we eventually reveal that we do think we know better than our parents, kids. We, we think we know better than our neighbors, our boss. We do want the attention we feel we deserve. We do want control over our own lives. Our humility is partly real, but partly show. Paul's point is that Jesus was utterly committed, even before the world began, to this work. His humility was not a show because he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, please understand this. The cross was such a horrific way to die that the Romans would not use the word cross in polite conversation. We have significant evidence that in Jesus's world, the Jews and the Gentiles considered even the mention of the cross a kind of obscenity. You killed someone this way. You killed someone this way, this particular way, to maximize shame and suffering. You nailed them up next to a main road and you let people watch as they bled, as they struggled for air. The victims were naked and covered in their own urine and defecation. Animals would go after them. And you did this. You did this unspeakable, disgusting thing for one great reason. Maximize the shame. Maximize the shame. Make sure that even people who liked the victim would never talk about them again because the shame and horror would be so bad. Make them an obscenity. That was what crucifixion meant to people in the ancient world. So Paul is saying that this was not a pretended humility. This was an extensive humility, a kind of self-emptying that we cannot ever fully understand. No one, no one has ever given up more. No one has ever suffered so much. And this is what Christmas really means. This is what Frank Houghton understood when he wrote that hymn. He saw, you see, in the deaths of John and Betty, a distant echo of what Christ himself had done. Two people, John and Betty, who gave up a happy middle-class life in the heartland of the USA to minister in China. Not the modern China we know today, but at the time, a place of poverty, desperately lacking in medicine and education, and on top of all that, experiencing a violent and bloody revolution, why would this young couple do that? Here's why. Because the lesson Paul was teaching the Philippians in chapter 2 had entered into their hearts. That is why John Stamm quoted Philippians right before he was executed. That's why that Chinese believer, that Chinese believer stood up for the couple as they were being taken to ex execution. All three believed that Jesus died for them and had changed their lives, that all for love's sake they believed. He took our shame that we might have his glory. And so 
we in the end, and this is such a great irony, we in the end will become great, will become glorious, but it won't happen through our vanity or our efforts or our grasping, but through the humble heart and self-emptying of a true son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you this morning, how can you be indifferent to this? But tragically, some of you are. Some of you are just lukewarm about this. But how can you stay that way? The nature of this message is such that you must either greet it with joy, tears, and wonder and make it the whole center of your life, or you have to hate it and resist it with every fiber in your being. How can we be unmoved, indifferent, when we see the heart of Christ? Last week, by God's grace, I took you through God's word into the throne room of heaven. Today, I've taken you to a place even more sacred, even more precious. We've gone through Philippians 2 into the very heart of Christ. And we have found, as one Puritan put it long ago, that as we place our hands on his heart, we find that it beats with love for us. And we have to say, oh, what wonder. Oh, what wonder if you're a Christian. Oh, what wonder, how amazing. Jesus, glorious King of Kings, deigns, that means decides in his humility to call me his beloved, lets me rest beneath his wings. That's what was in the heart of John and Betty Stam. And this is why Frank Houghton wrote this Christmas hymn. As he looked out over China one day, Houghton was overwhelmed with a sacrifice that John and Betty had willingly made to bring the gospel to China. However, he knew that behind that humble death stood a far greater story, the story of the consummate missionary, Jesus Christ, who exchanged the glory of heavens for a peasant's home, who could have summoned legions of angels to his defense, but instead hung upon the cross. A few years after the martyrdom of John and Betty, a 12-year-old girl that you know as Elizabeth Elliot took her own Bible and she copied into her Bible a poem that had been written by the martyr Betty Stam. Little 12-year-old Elizabeth had no idea that one day her own husband would become the greatest missionary of his generation and would die at the end of a spear bringing the gospel to others. Here's what Betty wrote. Betty wrote this poem, and Elizabeth Elliot, at 12 years old, copied it into her Bible. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes. All my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt and work out thy whole will in my life at any cost now and forever. Those are searching words, beautiful words, almost eerily prophetic, aren't they? Of what was to come for both women. But please know this, that before those words were written by Betty or copied by Elizabeth, those words were on the heart of Christ, God the Father's true Son. Jesus is heaven's missionary, and he comes into our world, and he says from all eternity and from the very depths 
of his own heart. Father, I delight to do thy will. O my God, here am I. Send me. Amen. Father, we recognize again today that we are here because of a great missionary, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we honor and remember this day, the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. Help us from this day forward to have no plans except those that glorify him. For having given his life for us, now we must give our lives to him. Work that in each and every life here, from the youngest to the oldest, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.